listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured. We've got a very special episode for you. We've got a report from the border with Koseka Movement. They are doing organizing and relief work down there, and they're going to give us an update on what's going on with the migrant caravan. But first, the news. So another Black Friday passed, and America once again repeated its yearly ritual of long lines at dawn and a mad dash for the hot sales. And this year we got a twofer with the addition of Cyber Monday and the looming leviathan of Amazon. But swooping in with an intervention against all this nonsense was a surge of solidarity from our neighbors in Europe. From Germany to Spain, Amazon warehouse workers staged a continental strike demanding fair wages and job conditions in a European economy that is looking more and more like America's low-wage sectors every day. These were informal one-day strikes in Germany. About 620 workers in Amazon's Bad Hersfeld and Rheinberg facilities went on strike. Most, though, did keep on working and operations weren't disrupted. They did, however, send a message of solidarity across the Atlantic, pleading for better working conditions and fair wages. German workers also have a union to represent them, the service workers' organization Vendi. Five Amazon facilities in the UK, where union coverage is also sparse, also saw strikes involving about 500 workers total. In Spain, Amazon's largest warehouse, San Fernando de Henares, launched a two-day work stoppage starting Friday. Reuters reports that between 85 and 90 percent of the staff walked off the job. It's a reflection of that country's growing economic crisis as growth stagnates and austerity hits hard. Amazon has expanded hugely across Europe, adding about 75,000 jobs since 2010. But as within the U.S., the company is also known as a high-stress and precarious employer. And our European peers also share our mutual loathing for the mogul at the top of Amazon's empire, Jeff Bezos. Mick Ricks, national officer of the GMB union in the UK, told Bloomberg News that he was tired of getting a raw deal from the star-chasing billionaire. You're the richest man in the world, he said. You have the wealth and the ability to make sure your workers are treated with respect and dignity. You, as the wealthiest man in the world, would prefer to spend your wealth on space travel rather than on the people who create your wealth. Of course, lately Bezos has been shoving his cash into a more down-to-earth venture, HQ2. We're going to hear a bit about that issue now from labor and community activists who staged a protest here in Queens, Long Island City to be exact, soon to be Amazon's new mega headquarters and current abode of yours truly. I popped down to speak to Rachel Rivera, an organizer with New York Communities for Change. I know what it is to be pushed out, be gentrified out of my neighborhood. I've been gentrified out of Williamsburg, I've been gentrified out of Bushwick, I've been gentrified out of East New York. And it's the same thing is going on over here. They're gentrifying everybody. Instead of giving the three billion to Amazon, they should give three billion to make affordable housing. Three billion dollars to housing. Three billion dollars. To the MTA, which I was stuck right. in MTA transit yep. for about an hour and a half just to get here. That's right. They need to give three buildings for the homelessness that's going on today. That's right. That's right. Instead of giving the richest man the, the biggest tax break ever, I ever heard of, they should give it 
to the people. Why are we going to give the biggest tax break to the richest man and not put it somewhere else that we, where we really need it? We really need affordable housing. We really need a better transit system. But yet they want to give this to a man that wants to take away homes because they got to tear down a lot of these factories, a lot of these homes to build up the factory they want. What do you think about the fact that they're putting it right next to Queensbridge? Queensbridge that's, that's the whole thing. That's what they're trying to do, gentrify. If you look around, you see all these pretty buildings, but I don't see the neighborhood. Now, I have, I know people that live in, in Queensbridge. They have no hot, there's times they have no hot water. There's times there's, there's no heat. So how is it they're gonna build this multi-million corporation right next to the projects when they can't even keep the projects warm for those people? So I don't see no give and take here. I see them taking and taking from the communities. Mm -hmm. I see them taking and taking from the poor. They're not giving to the, to the poor, they're giving to the rich. And that's not right. It's not right at all. Um, what do you think that, you know, given that we have these elected officials, at least for the time being, what kinds of conditions do you think the community should be putting on this deal if they do intend on ramming it through? What should we demand at this point? If it's already, if they've already given these breaks or if they've already started to, you know, get the paperwork rolling on this, like what, how can people intervene now? They could do it like what we're doing now, okay. protest it. We could let them know that we know what's going on. No matter how many times you put that three man in a room, the people's gonna know. And the more that we know, the more fucked up they're gonna be. Because at the end of the day, the same way we elect them, them in, thinking that they're gonna help us, is the same way we will find somebody that's gonna be definitely for the people instead of putting profit over people. We've seen this pattern before with say Brooklyn Yards, you see, you know, with a lot of development, when push comes to shove, they end up putting something there. If they do come down and just plop this multi-billion dollar complex in the middle of the city, how can people actually resist if this building is right in the middle of their neighborhood, if it's already hiring people, if it's already become part of the landscape here? How do, how does the city respond well, then? Well, if, if, if push comes to shove and that happens, the whole thing is we got to get the people that live in the neighborhood protest so they could get hired instead of having people from outside the area be hired. They should make instead of how they made it right next to the biggest uh, NYCHA complex in New York, they should hire from the biggest NYCHA, have this big, this big Amazon place hired from the biggest NYCHA complex, which is right across the street. That was Rachel Rivera, an organizer with New York Communities for Change. I'm starting out today with a sad story. General Motors has announced it will end production at five facilities in the U.S. and Canada. This means laying off 8,000 salaried workers and 6,000 hourly workers. The company is John Nichols Notes of the Nation, which just 10 years back got a sweet bailout from the U.S. government during the 2008 financial collapse, aims at saving $6 billion a year by the end of 2020 by closing some of its largest manufacturing facilities, including the Detroit Hamtramck plant that is GM's last facility in that city. Among the plants closing is also one in Oshawa, Ontario, where union workers quickly walked out in response, and the union representing them there says that the shuttering of the plants is in violation of its contract. 
GM, which is now highly profitable, is also closing its iconic Lordstown, Ohio assembly plant. Not far, Nichols noted, from where Trump told workers just last year that jobs that had left the state are all coming back. And to cut production at a transmission factory in Michigan and a parts plant in Baltimore. It's going to do all of this in order to stop making many of the mainstays of its success, Chevys, Buicks, and Cadillacs, and move into production of self-driving cars using virtual tools and robotification. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who literally wrote the book on trade policy, no, seriously, he did, you should go read it, said the company reaped a massive tax break from last year's GOP tax bill and failed to invest that money in American jobs, choosing to build its blazer in Mexico. Trump, of course, spent a lot of time on the campaign trail claiming he'd bring manufacturing back, but has done little since his triumphant mission accomplished moment in Indianapolis, where he claimed to have saved the carrier plant. Spoiler alert, a lot of those workers got laid off too, and so did those at the Rexnord plant around the corner, about which Trump said not a peep. In office, of course, Trump is governed like a typical neoliberal, with only tax cuts on offer as economic policy. And GM is proving, of course, that companies will take those tax policies and surely fire workers anyway. Its stock price went up on the announcement, also something that's all too common in this day and age. The company has bought back $10 billion of its own stock since 2015. Double CBS Money Watch noted what the job cuts will save it. The thing that hit me, though, was when hearing this news was Lordstown. The Lordstown strike in 1972 was an iconic moment in labor history. Its story told in a friend of the show Eric Loomis's new book, A History of America and Ten Strikes. The Lordstown plant was symbolic of the changing workforce of that era. With the good contracts and benefits that unions had won decades earlier, young workers with long hair and afros, a mixed gender, mixed race workforce that all wanted something more from their work than a crappy 40 hours a week on the assembly line. As one union official said, then, if you were 22 and had a job where you were treated like a machine and knew you had about 30 years to go, how would you feel? The workers faced speed-ups even as the plant embraced automation, a common complaint in factories of the day, made central to the critiques put forward by groups like the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And young people wanted more out of their lives than being treated like machines, expendable at worst, best expected to keep grinding. Eric writes, quote, workers were simply fed up. These attitudes not only infuriated GM, but also UAW leadership. The UAW did not know what to do with these rebellious workers who often ignored the international. The companies wanted the UAW to control their workers and make them obey orders and live up to the contract. That was part of the idea behind the Treaty of Detroit. But the aging UAW officers in Detroit did not have that kind of control over a rebellious plant of young workers. Fewer jobs and sped up work was something the leadership saw as unavoidable. UAW officers did not think the Lordstown workers had it so bad. End quote. The workers there struck anyway. They won back their jobs, but nothing changed in terms of control over production. And now, years later, their plant is closing, and any question of workers' control over production is settled for good. The Lordstown strike was the most visible example of something that capitalism quickly moved to embrace, the desire of workers to have fulfilling work, not just any work. The story of the last few decades since Lordstown has been the story of workers losing jobs at places like Lordstown and gaining them in places where they're expected to actually like the work, or at least have to pretend to. Spoiler alert, this is the story of my next book. The unions, not to be outdone, began organizing in different fields, and that's how we get the story of Columbia University graduate student employees and many other grad workers across the country organizing with the same union that represents those GM employees, the UAW.
The news at Columbia was at first triumphant. We have discussed the struggle for a union at Columbia back on Belabored Episode 111 back in September of 2016, when the campaign had already been on for years. Since the 2016 National Labor Relations Board decision allowing the graduate workers to organize and the vote in December of that year by the Columbia workers to unionize, the university had still refused to bargain with them. The union had finally set a strike deadline for December 4th for an ongoing strike, not a one-day or even a week-long one like the one they held last year, when the administration agreed to come to the table. But it came out that the UAW had been negotiating with the Columbia administration without input from the graduate workers. This negotiation practice also calls to mind the situation at Lordstown, where the UAW made a deal with the GM officials to settle the strike over the heads of its young workforce. And it came out that the Columbia deal for a bargaining framework included a no-strike clause. While the union would begin bargaining next February, they would be out of the right to strike until April 2020. The deal drew anger and criticism from many of the graduate workers, but the bargaining framework was ultimately ratified 1,035 to to 720, a large no vote, but ultimately an unsuccessful one. In looking at these two stories this week, I'm struck by how often these issues of power, of autonomy, of who is going to control the union, the rank-and-file workers or union officials, continue to come up. The UAW has branched out of auto factories in recent years, but the issues at the center of its famous Treaty of Detroit still rankle. Can workers gain control of the conditions of their labor, or shall those always ultimately be left up to the boss? Do workers know best, or should their union officials have leeway to make deals on their behalf? What makes a fulfilling job, and how much of one's life should be wrapped up in it anyway? While the auto workers of Lordstown hated their work, many grad students genuinely love theirs, a situation that has justified long-standing ill treatment and low pay. I would suggest that unions need to do some serious thinking on these questions as these factory jobs continue to disappear and as the hope for the labor movement tends to come from young people who have learned, for good or ill, that their jobs should be fulfilling and enjoyable. Now, you're probably familiar with the figure usually given to show how the gender wage gap between men and women, 80 cents to a dollar, has remained stubbornly high despite the enactment of all these anti-discrimination laws, the growing power and presence of women in the workforce, and many generations of feminist advocacy. A new report from the Institute for Women's Policy and Research might help explain why this figure never seems to budge. It might actually be pretty off. IWPR measured the growth in women's wages over time using a different calculation that's more nuanced than annual or weekly wages. Instead, they measured women's earnings over 15-year periods from the 1960s to the present, and across these generations, they analyzed the data according to long-term income as well as their work history. That includes the consistency and stability of women's employment. According to this new measure, when mapped over these 15-year periods, the long-term gender earnings gap might widen to as much as 50%, depending on how attached you were to the workforce. Attachment to the workforce is defined as the consistency of your work over a long period of time. So that might mean a strongly attached worker is working, say, 12 or 13 out of 15 years full-time year-round. So in that case, in the highest category, the earnings gap from, say, 2001 to 2015, it's about 30%. still pretty high, but if you look at comparing workers with varying levels of attachment across the broader workforce, 
it goes up to 50%. Here's the Institute's president, Heidi Hartman, explaining this new, more context-based measure of the difference between men's earnings and women's earnings. What I gather from this is that the earnings gap that we're used to hearing about is not the usual sort of 80 cents and a dollar figure that's often bandied about and often misunderstood, but changes quite a bit when we factor in the long-term picture over 15 years. Is that um, generally the, the conclusion that you came up with for the different time periods you assessed? Yes. It's not only that we look at 15 years, but we look at a broader group of women because in 15 years, if you look at all of those who worked every year and worked full-time 12 out of 15 years, you get something not too dissimilar from the, the uh, short-term figure. It's only three or four percentage points off. So what we're really doing is looking at all the women who worked during 15 years and seeing what their total earnings are over the period and comparing them to the total earnings of men over the period. So if you take, um, you know, the different definitions of, uh, uh, you leave, you, uh, in, in that last table in the report, we have, um, we show that by having the broadest definition of the labor force, we get the biggest wage gap, even in the current period. So there's two main conclusions. One is that, yes, the wage gap has been improving. Even when you look at the long-term earnings gap and you look at the most inclusive definition of the labor force, including those who don't work some years and who work part-time, that gap has been falling. It's still large, though. So when you look at that group, the wage gap is 51% in the current period, meaning that women are only 49% of what men are across 15 years in the current period, rather than that 80%. But if we look at the strongly attached that group I mentioned that works 12 years full-time year-round and works every year for 15 years, that earnings ratio for women to men's earnings in our study is 71%, and the gap is 29%. So by looking at a restricted labor force, you know, a smaller, much smaller number of women, only 28% of women are in that restrictive definition, uh, you can get much closer to the one-year earnings ratio for women who work full-time year-round in that one year. Mm -hmm. But what we're saying is that over 15 years, very few women work uh, full-time year-round all year, and many of them don't work all 15 years. And when you count all those women and look at all the earnings compared to all the men, men's earnings, then you get this uh, ratio of 49% and a gap of 51%. Even currently, that's even uh, 2001 to 2015. Yeah, so that sounds pretty massive compared to the 80 cents in a dollar figure. Um, So I think some people may be shocked. On the other hand, there's been progress, <laughs> so it's not a total loss. Um, whereas I guess with the, the thing about the, uh, the usual traditional earnings gap that we're used to hearing about is um, – has has been sort of stubbornly at that 80% level for, for a while now. Um, so does this add a little bit more? I mean, I, I understand that you're looking at a, a period of 2001 to 2015, so uh, maybe it's it's hard to discern, like, how fast it's been changing. But I guess um, for the the earnings across 15 years for the different time periods, I mean, if we're looking back in the late 60s, it's dropped <laughs> from um, 81% to 51%. So maybe that's not, that's a sign that something is happening. Um, but um, how does this add, I guess, nuance to the, to the 
the discussion that often goes around goes on around the gender earnings gap, which is, oh, these are structural problems, not a, an issue of you know de jure discrimination based on gender, but rather the way the workforce is structured. So does does this add to that picture for us? Well, I think it does. I mean, it certainly shows that across the three 15-year periods we look at, including the first one starting in 1968, uh, the gender gap has gotten smaller. It, it was uh, 81% in that first period. And most of the change occurred between the first and second periods. So it does show that change has slowed down, just like those annual figures show. And, uh, you know, most of the uh, civil rights legislation that we have that was so important for bringing about um, new opportunities for women uh, were passed in, uh, most of those laws were passed in the 60s and 70s. And we haven't had a a lot of new laws uh, passed since then. Even the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was passed in 1978, uh, which prevented employers from discriminating against a pregnant woman if they say wouldn't discriminate against a man with a heart attack. In other words, if they gave him sick leave, they had to give the pregnant woman sick leave when she had her baby or had other complications as well. So that was a very important law that had been overlooked in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which gave us, you know, the basic non-discrimination uh, law that we have and the Equal Pay Act in 1963. So these laws are very old, 1963, 1964, 1978. And we just haven't had much national legislation since. So it's, it isn't really just a structural problem. It's a problem of public policy, and that can be changed. And we did change it in the 60s and 70s, and we saw much more progress in that earlier period than we've seen lately. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest that, you know, it does point to the need for public policy. And yes, some of those are structural when you don't have subsidized child care that help low-income uh, parents, when you don't have paid family leave like other countries have. We know from economic research that this is keeping back uh, women's labor force participation. They're not working as much as they could because they don't have paid family leave, which gives them a guaranteed right to go back to their job, and they don't have a way of affording childcare. And most of the other advanced wealthy countries that we compete with have all that, and they have a higher percentage of women in the labor force. And they have, uh, as a result, they have a larger, you know, a larger labor force compared to us as a share of the total population. So I think that these are public policy issues which you can call structural, but I think a lot of structural issues can be addressed by public policy and the tendency of employers to discriminate can also be addressed by public policy. So we point to the laws that have come about in several states, like uh, not allowing the the use of salary history when you're interviewing people for a job, so you can't ask them, what did you make on your last job? Uh, because that tends to build in discrimination against women who are likely to have made less on their last job than the guy that you may be interviewing for the same position mm-hmm. made on his last job. So there are some new laws that can get at, at discrimination as well. That was Heidi Hartman of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. For weeks, the Central American migrant caravan has been approaching the U.S. border and gathering Trump's ire. 
Now it's in Tijuana, and we're bearing witness to a tragic humanitarian crisis, a roiling economic crisis, a crisis of globalization, and one of the most glaring moral failures of the Trump immigration policy. Throngs of desperate and exhausted migrants are coming to seek asylum, and instead of providing refuge, border authorities have brutalized and gassed them simply for demanding their basic rights. And one thing you will hear consistently from the news footage of the migrating crowds from Central America is that, first, they are not criminals, despite what Trump says, and second, they simply want to work. They want dignity. Fundamentally, this is a mass mobilization of working people, and since these people are exercising their right to free movement, moving in solidarity to claim their dignity as human beings, this is also a workers' movement and a poor people's movement and a refugee movement. We spoke with Immigrant Rights Advocacy Network, COSECA, which is now doing relief and organizing work at the border. The spokesperson is asked to remain anonymous due to the sensitive nature of their work. Kosecha is on the ground right now as part of a national working group, the Caravan Support Network. Um, we're here in San Diego um, plugging in volunteers from all over the country to do logistics, volunteer communications, media work, alongside with coordination work here on the San Diego side and plugging in those volunteers in Tijuana to do hands-on um, direct aid with um the asylum seekers and SM seeker refugees by giving donations, helping cook, um, talking to them, um, humanizing them, getting footage, doing many interviews. That's the general work we're doing. What's going on at the border now and how have things unfolded? Have there been any surprises or um, have you been sort of expecting the, the crackdown that seems to be unfolding? So one thing that we have expected has been the generalized criminal narrative that big news stations have been pushing out, like uh, New York Times, Fox 25, and other related news stations. So that's the only thing we expected. In regards to on the ground, we didn't expect to meet such a large-scale human rights crisis, humanitarian crisis. So once we got out there and, for example, giving out our first donation badge, so, for example, everyone who gives donations at the stadium, one thing we weren't expecting was to give out these donations independently at the Perito Juarez Stadium, which is the stadium in Tijuana that is currently being um, used as a shelter right now for the thousands of refugees who are coming in from Honduras and Salvador, we didn't expect to measure the giant need from everyone there. So even though we brought donations and people are continuing to bring to bring donations, no one's expecting the amount of need and the lack of resources that we're providing. So the demand has completely outmatched the amount of supplies outside organizations are able to supply. And one thing we didn't expect, particularly from yesterday, for example, one thing we didn't expect is to see how atrociously the U.S. CBP is responding to the peaceful demonstrators, the peaceful asylum seekers who are trying to demonstrate, you know, their need and their humanitarian crisis to outside media. We didn't expect to see how how unresponsive and how 
how unresponsive other media teams have been on the ground. So we didn't expect how individualistic certain media teams have been on the ground and just going in there to get information and not actually help. And from yesterday in particular, we didn't expect for Border Patrol to throw tear gases on the front line, knowing seeing that how many children and families were up there on the front line and how many families and children they were putting in jeopardy by throwing their tear gases on. And a tear gas had like a CH letter on it, um, in which um, based off of veteran friends that I have, um, they've never seen these equipment and mentioned how it seems like it's a piece of like equipment that must have been bought in at a army surplus store. So not something that is um, familiar to most um, military men. And we didn't, and we didn't expect the amount of chaos once like out there based off of recent news, um, how Trump deployed military, militarized men. Um, I believe that, those, the people who were shooting are those militarized men. Since on these tear gas grenades, it says for militarized personnel only. In terms of the humanitarian aspect of this, are you actually able to mm-hmm. get across the border to in order to deliver aid? Or how is that working? Because it sounds like they're still on the Tijuana side. So apparently when you go across borders, the only thing you could carry without being fined for declared items is for items that you will personally use across the border. So let's say if I'm going to bring donated clothes, for me not to get fined, uh, those clothes need to be for my personal use and for what I will bring back. Meaning that a lot of um, volunteers who've been going to the other side have been faced with fines or have or who have had to get, be creative in, um, in their ways of um, getting across figuring out which which port of entry is being less monitored in regards to like donations coming across. We have a feeling that um the Mexican Border Patrol has gotten like demands to specifically crack down on um volunteers going across with donations. So one method that people have been doing now is just going across with money to buy donations on the other side to avoid this confrontation with um, Mexican Border Patrol. And in regards to coming back to the U.S. side, there have been certain individuals who have had their phones, who've had U.S. Border Patrol try to claim that they have the right to check phones coming back into the U.S. Legally speaking, they do, but under certain Supreme Court law, police authorities cannot check people's phones without a warrant. But according to practice and like minor policy in regards to um, CBP, they do have this legal authorization to check people's phones coming back into the U.S. without a warrant. Um, So that has been something that we have not expected in regards to all the volunteers coming back and forth. There is some sort of either formal or informal encampment set up for them now, isn't there? Yeah, so the formal encampment is the Benito Juarez Stadium I was telling you about. Um, It's a sports stadium in Tijuana um, that's doubling as a shelter um, that's holding thousands of people. It's just dirt and people and the asylum seekers, refugees who made their makeshift tents in there. Um, And in regards to the Mexican Authority, I have to say that like any other country, we have good cops and bad cops. Um, there have been co- 
um, in regards to um, worldwide refugee um, law, uh, refugees cannot be picked up by police, from what I've heard. And um, I have to say that some of the Mexican police that I have encountered have been very responsive and communicative with these refugees and encouraging them to file complaints about the cops who have mistreated them and who have like gotten out the way to try to like incarcerate them. And I have to say that Pueblo Sin Fronteras has been doing an amazing job with um, providing a lot of legal observations and connecting these legal observations to the sergeants of the local Tijuana police force. And I have to say that the main general of the Tijuana police force have been very communicative and like fair, I'd say, with um, listening to the asylum seekers thanks to Pueblo Sin Fronteras um, legal, legal observation work. And he has encouraged um, asylum seekers to, again, like file complaints about like the mistreatment that they have faced to, from the Tijuana police. And there have been, I witnessed the fact that um, an asylum seeker told the Tijuana police, oh, why would I um, file a complaint if I might end up dead the next day? Because that's, that's just like a, an infamous fact of Latin American authority. And the Tijuana police said, well, the man right here who just spoke out filed many complaints and he's clearly alive. So I assure you that you should continue, you should pursue this complaint. And this conversation happened after an altercation outside of Benito Juarez a few days ago at night. And that might have been depicted at the media, at, at the media as a riot or something, which it wasn't. Um, it was like a minor altercation of someone being criminalized for like smoking marijuana around the area, um, which as we know, has been um, a tactic for the war on drugs and incarcerating black and brown people um, across the globe. I was hearing reports that the Navy is providing some kind of humanitarian aid in terms of food, or if you could just explain kind of what the living conditions are like there. Yeah, so again, the living conditions for the asylum seekers is on just cold dirt um, in their makeshift tents that have been either created through their makeshift, um, whatever they found, or thanks to volunteers um, across the globe who have donated tents. Um, so their shelter, and there was a point, um, there was a downpour of rain a few days ago in which an asylum speaker spoke out to the police force saying that, oh, we've all been wet because there wasn't carps provided for us. Um, so, you know, water goes through tents. Yeah, they a lot of people got sick after that downpour and um once the asylum seeker spoke out to the spoke with the sergeant, the Tijuana police sergeant, he promised that um apparently the state was gonna provide um tarps to make sure that no one would be downpoured with future rainfalls that would be coming. And also according to asylum seekers, the government has said that the shelter of Benito Juarez is going to be closed on Friday and kick everyone out. I'm not sure how accurate that information is, but that's what I've heard from asylum seekers who are currently taking shelter in the Benito Juarez Stadium in Tijuana. And I must say that the actual community, the Mexican and you know Latin American community, has been a lot more responsive than the actual Mexican government. Um, responsive in, in, in regards to aid and, you know, being able to help, which has been something that 
mainstream media has not shared. The only thing that has been really put in the spotlight has been the Mexican nationalists who are anti-immigrants, which is a very small population of Mexicans. What are you hearing in terms of just what they plan to do after this initial encounter with the border police? There are reports that Mexico has plans to deport some of these people. Um, I don't know exactly how the people plan to navigate now. Have you heard anything on the ground from what their next plans are? For those who haven't applied for asylum, their plans are to apply for asylum. And, you know, they're... They're in shock right now. There isn't really a a next plan from what I heard yesterday. You know, this altercation at the border, this attack against the asylum seekers from the U.S. side has left people traumatized, triggered, and in shock. In regards to, like, the actual asylum seekers and the volunteers who are on the ground. So that trauma hasn't really allowed for what that next step is. After that awful attack from the U.S. side that put a lot of children and families in jeopardy, the only thing I heard is, okay, next time we're not bringing the kids here knowing how the U.S. is going to put their lives at stake. But in in terms of seeking asylum, I guess the, the plan is um, for the families to continue to wait this out and just continue to try to press their mm-hmm. claims. And I think the whole... The only point of these demonstrations is to pressure the U.S. side to, you know, quicken their um, asylum process. We've heard that there's there's been a, a max of 100 um, applications to be reviewed a day. And according to asylum seekers, like 13 people are being crossed as of yesterday, like per day or something. And they're upset at the fact at how how incredibly small that ratio is. I think Trump's plan was to issue an executive order to make that permanent uh, and just to not accept asylum seekers. Is that something that people are hearing on the ground over there too? I have not heard that at all until right now. And if I haven't heard that, I'm sure people out there haven't heard that. And one thing that they have heard and have asked me personally is, oh, is it true that, you know, the U.S. like media news or painting us like criminals and that everyone hates us, which was awful to hear from them. And, and it was heartbreaking for me to for me to answer like what's actually happening here and how awful the media is depicting them. Um, and yeah, that was very discouraging to those on the other side. And they were really grateful at the fact that, you know, other volunteers are out there trying to, you know, lift up their narratives. What are your plans now that you face these difficulties in terms of actually both delivering aid as well as just navigating the border area? Um, do you have a plan to sort of change tactics or to get more creative in terms of bringing stuff over the border um, or, um, or in terms of communicating and coordinating with the people on the other side? Um, well, we're nothing's really changing. We're just getting work done faster because of how how much of a crisis this is, especially after yesterday, especially after those, the, the inhumane attacks against the asylum seekers just demonstrating at the border um, yesterday. So the only thing that has changed, the only thing that has changed is the fact that, you know, the rapid response is now becoming faster. And now a priority is, you know, lifting up these narratives now more mm-hmm. than ever.
There's obviously both a humanitarian as well as a, an economic justice aspect to this. Um, and as a group that you yourselves have been involved in labor mobilizations before, um, under the current administration, uh, immigrants even within the border are kind of under siege right now. So um, how are you planning to sort of navigate that and what are you telling people? Well, a way to navigate that is to mobilize other groups, other organizations, and other individuals, um, black, brown, allies, anyone who is willing to stand up and and do some work to reduce the fact that this is a human rights crisis. You know, if, if, if these asylum seekers are able to cross, we shouldn't just turn our backs once they cross. You know, people, these people are displaced. You don't just expect a displaced person to be on their feet once they once they get to the other side or once they finally get a home, you know, the support has to be long-term. This isn't just a now thing. This is a, this is, this has to be like a, I don't know, maybe like a, a seven year plan. Like support is, is, is an ongoing thing. It isn't just a, it isn't just a now thing. Like we need to get people stabilized once they get across. We need, we need to get people support when they're going to through their asylum legal process here once they get to the U.S. I need to help them to, you know, understand, like, the terrain of whatever city they they live in. You know, there have been asylum seekers from the past who have been, like, transferred to Chicago, I think, like, a few days ago. I'm not sure if it's there specifically from this, like, refugee caravan, but, you know, asylum seekers, they they come in every single day for, like, a long time, you know, asylum seekers have been coming into the U.S. since Ellis Island. So it's important for us to understand that the support has to be long-term and not just short-term right now. And to get organizations to, to pledge and individuals to pledge to, I don't know, like step up to the plate and become sponsors and maybe open their homes to help stabilize these individuals. There are allied families in Boston who have opened up their homes to asylum seekers and which is very, which is very, you know, we, we, we are grateful for those allies who have taken that extra step to open up their homes and, you know, provide that extra level of support for, for those who are getting comfortable in their new, new cities that are completely new. You know, there, there are asylum seekers who've never been in the city before. There are asylum seekers who've never been in weather less than, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a lot to get accustomed to depending on, where you move to next. Earlier when there were Day Without the Immigrant Strikes, we saw a lot of like day labor groups, worker centers coming forward to show support. Have they been able to deploy any resources or do any outreach? Yeah, we're connecting with as many networks as possible. So if you are a labor, labor working group out there, or if you're an anti-displacement um, nonprofit, if you just believe in being able to reduce the amount of human rights crisis here in the Western Hemisphere, then please sign the Cosecha Volunteer Pledge to be able to know how to plug you in either remotely or on the ground, because this work can be done from the other side of the world. You know, it's just being able to get people, you know, organized. And through that organization, being able to assign tasks and get conversations going to being to, you know, create plans and actions 
whether that means like a simple, you know, share on your Facebook or being able to create media or being able to to organize a a workshop for the kids to engage in in Tijuana or a workshop for the adults to engage in in Tijuana or being able to, you know, anything. Anything is anything is accepted here. Any any work that can that can be done to reduce the amount of trauma out there and to reduce the amount of like hunger and need out there is well accepted. What do you want our listeners to do in terms of what can they do right now to help with this effort? Um, and what can they do in the long term in terms of helping spread the word in their communities um, all the way up to directly volunteering? For any listener out there who wants to get involved um, with direct support and aid, just know that direct support and aid does not just mean being on the ground in Tijuana. This means, you know, this means you can do work remotely. This means donating money. This means spreading the word. Um, and if you need more guidance on what that looks like, please go on to lawelga.com and sign the, volu- the Cosecha Volunteer um, Pledge. And from there, we can direct we can figure out together what your capacity is and what you can do based off your capacity. So there's a lot you can do, but based off your capacity, your capacity is going to determine what you can do. And we can definitely work together to figure out what that looks like, whether it's whether it's being connected to the social media post sharing network, or if that means you know. If you live in, in the San Diego or in, in, in the California border area, um, if you can host volunteers to stay at your house, or if that means like donating groceries to the volunteers here, or if that means donating money to buy groceries on the other side to provide to the asylum seekers, anything is welcome. So if you're, if you're interested in supporting, please go on to the lawega.com and sign the Cosecha Volunteer Pledge. So one thing a lot of medias have been asking in Tijuana and trying to like get out of the asylum seekers is, who is your leader? Who is leading you? And one thing that we really need to push, and one thing that the asylum seekers, the asylum refugees have been pushing as well, is the fact that no one's leading them. The only thing that has led them to this exodus um, trying to get into, the, trying to legally get into the United States is the fact that their home countries do not pay them well enough. There aren't enough economic resources to provide healthy and or sufficient um, meals for their families. The fact that their home countries do not have um, enough medical supplies for the sick, and the fact that violence is makes living there living conditions very unsafe, um, and the polit- the corrupt U.S.-backed politics in Central America. So a lot of these destabilizations in Central America has been in effect from U.S. intervention. So the fact that the U.S. isn't acting now to help is a disgrace because we we are the source of this destabilization that has caused this exodus in these countries that are currently sending so many um, asylum seekers 
to the U.S. and have been for a number of years now. I mean, this is not just a sudden thing. Can you talk about what exactly the U.S. did to produce this crisis in countries like El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras? Yeah, so overall, the current um, exodus of asylum seekers have been, the large majority of them have been Central America, um, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Honduras, right? So as of right now, I'm not sure if the listeners know the political unrest in in Nicaragua. Based off the Nicaraguenses that I know, they're saying that their political um, violence and crisis is almost matching what's happening in Venezuela and same with Honduras. Um, If anything, asylum seekers are saying that it's worse than um, the current state of Venezuela. Um, And um, right now, I have to say that the last president, the current president of Honduras, um, had a lot of um, U.S. backing. And he was the current president was not elected by by the was not elected from popular demand. He was just kind of placed there based off what the asylum seekers have told me. In El Salvador, this goes back like to the late 80s and 90s when the SMLN group was going in presidential elections against the, against the ARENA um, political group. And the U.S. regime decided to provide arms and money to the ARENA group, which caused the civil war in El Salvador which resulted in, you know, worse mass poverty and the spread of poverty and um, economic gaps. Um, And this has just been mirrored throughout the different Central American countries that I have mentioned, Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Honduras. And that was an activist with Coseca updating us on the situation at the border. You can learn more about their organizing work, and you can also connect with other groups involved at lahuelga.com. That's L-A-H-U-E-L-G-A.com. You can follow them on Twitter at Coseca Movement. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. My pick for the week is John Gallagher of the Detroit Free Press with GM's Hamtramck plant closing reopens old controversy in Detroit. The announcement of the impending closure of GM plants across the U.S. and Canada came as a shock to the workers, but on the other hand, it was just another symbol of how little Trump cares about the working masses he claims to champion, and it was a long time coming. Such shutdowns are routine, and they are long feared by any Rust Belt factory town that knows that its days are numbered. Long gone are the days of what's good for General Motors being good for America. Instead, today, even as GM moves on to greener pastures and other shores, American workers get stuck with economic devastation, busted unions, and communities ripped apart by social despair. John Gallagher zeroes in on one particular Michigan town, Hamtramck, in its cautionary tale of boom, bust, and broken promises. The GM plant that will close here will be missed, but it wasn't always welcome. Forty years ago, Hamtramck was once a bastion of Polish immigrants, a tight-knit community with mom and pops and churches. Then the government swooped in to seize several properties by eminent domain in order to site a brand new auto factory as part of the state's economic development plan. 
by forcing the locals to accept the new plant. The plan was intended to modernize the workforce and feed the then-burgeoning auto market. The community people at first revolted because they hated the government's heavy-handed occupation. Gallagher writes that the land seizures, quote, made national news, got people like consumer advocate Ralph Nader involved, and the many protests included a nearly month-long sit-in at the neighborhood's Immaculate Conception Church that police eventually broke up with arrests. The opponents took their case to the Michigan Supreme Court, which in 1981 decided to back the GM project. The court said that taking property from one private owner to give to another private owner in the name of economic development was an acceptable use of eminent domain. And eminent domain has since become a favorite tool for economic renewal efforts of that era. With the court's blessing, Mayor Coleman Young plowed into the town, planted the new factory, and eventually the townspeople did come to embrace the plant because it did bring many new auto jobs as promised. Gallagher notes that for the working-class Polish households, the plant provided, quote, a good living for its UAW-represented workforce, which today numbers about 1,500. But now that the good times are grinding to a halt, the author reckons with the plant's legacy. He asks whether we've really learned anything from the Town saga. Quote, for even if eminent domain powers had been curtailed, a project like the Hamtramck plant could not be possible today, Cities, counties, and the state still swing at every pitch that promises a bonanza of jobs, unquote. Now we see cities everywhere still trying to outcompete each other for jobs by offering massive tax breaks and other corporate welfare in hopes of chasing down the next big thing in manufacturing. Gallagher ticks off the names of today's GMs. There's Foxconn in Wisconsin. Then there's, quote, the national feeding frenzy over Amazon's second headquarters. Even without the pole town type seizures, officials still court these huge economic deals, even though they threaten to elbow out existing urban uses, unquote. We know this road often leaves workers in a dead end, yet cities keep following this neoliberal growth-at-all-costs formula, even though it ultimately proves unsustainable for many cities, and they tend to fall apart at the expense of local taxpayers, workers, and communities. Now Hamtramck is just another refugee of a boom-bust cycle, and now my own neighborhood in Queens is again not heeding the Rust Belt's warning to the rest of America. Beware of strangers bearing gifts, especially if they come with a $3 billion price tag and a name like Bezos or Zuckerberg. Gallagher reflects, quote, When push comes to shove, officials will still more than often choose the Big Bang projects with their glittering promises of jobs and tax base over the quieter neighborhood revitalization work. We know how this story ends when people don't put in the hard work of raising up people, not just factories. The author closes with the lament of a vintage American writer, William Faulkner. Quote, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. And so now a new chapter unfolds in the Rust Belt, waiting for the next big thing. And once again, the people who will be left behind are the real story. The one everyone always overlooks as they chase a fleeting American dream. The never-ending creep of emotional labor, from a term meaning the controlling of one's own emotions to produce a desired emotional state in others, as coined by Arlie Russell Hochschild in her classic study of flight attendants and debt collectors, The Managed Heart, to mean just about, well, anything the author wants, has reached truly cartoonish proportions, and while we here at Belabored and Descent have heroically tried to maintain a somewhat steady definition, it's been a struggle. Even Hochschild herself weighed in this week. But the biggest jump in definition has happened in a new book, it seems, and Charlotte Shane's review of that book, which is titled Fed Up, 
at Book Forum, the review titled A House Divided, takes to task our endless slippage of ideas about the unprayed work we do in the home. Gemma Hartley wrote a piece about doing housework that went viral a while back for Harper's Bazaar and quickly capitalized on her fame by cranking out a book that, in Shane's words, quote, attempts to stretch the thin blanket of emotional labor over all corners of the female experience. The internet, Shane continues, quote, like a dog with a mouthful of homework, tore the term emotional labor into illegible bits. And those bits have given us the need to refer to any kind of work that we might have a feeling about as emotional labor. The problem with this is that emotional labor was a term designed not to apply to a specific type of work, but to a facet of doing the job. The toll that it took on workers to day after day have to use what Hawkschild described as deep acting to hide their own real emotions behind a facade of whatever it took to do the job. For the flight attendants and so many other workers who do gendered service labor, that's keeping on a smile even when the customer is berating you or dropped something on your foot or just didn't tip at the end of an expensive meal. For the debt collectors Hawkschild also studied, that's ramping up enough threatening rage to cow customers into paying up. But picking up socks, doing laundry, moving boxes, etc. doesn't require a glued-on smile. It's just work. The old-fashioned term we used to use for such work is, well, housework. But Hartley wants it known that part of her job is apparently pretending that she likes doing housework, too. Of course, this is entirely possible, but as Shane points out, it is also, in fact, entirely possible, particularly for a middle-class woman whose initial complaint was that her husband didn't hire a cleaning service for Mother's Day, to just not pretend to like it, and in fact, maybe even refuse to do it at all. Shane writes, quote, This recurring experience of being expected to state the obvious may be why Hartley likes the idea that housekeeping is invisible labor, though in fact, unlike traditionally defined emotional labor, it rarely is. Truly invisible labor is more often the result of a significant difference in power. It's what happens when someone laughs at their boss's bad jokes or feigns deep investment in a client's personal woes. Revealing this labor as labor, as a calculation, instead of authentic emotional reaction, would create the opposite of the desired effect. The effort must be concealed in order to work. While a husband might not quite register that his wife rinsed and recycled the bottles left over from his poker night, that doesn't mean it was impossible to witness in the first place, and describing it as such, strangely, lets guys off the hook. She continues, Real emotional labor must be invisible because it takes place internally, and if it calls attention to itself, it fails. Moreover, it cannot be split between the person performing and the person receiving. A worker is never going to have a conversation with their boss about how taxing it is to pretend to like them, though Hartley can and does have many conversations with her husband about how he needs to pull his weight. The work she's talking about is work that can be shared. In Hawkschild's book, if emotional labors don't placate and please the right people, they lose their job, but throughout Fed Up, the consequences are unclear. We are expected to send out the Christmas cards even when we don't care about them, Hartley writes in one typical example, the we referring to, I guess, any partnered woman. What happens if that expectation is not met, and who does the expecting? Often, it seems it's Hartley herself, meaning the only repercussion of not sending the cards is a sense of guilt and inadequacy, which, though highly gendered, is hardly universal. Whither the coupled women who haven't memorized every birthday, who leave dirty dishes in the sink for days, who have never sent a Christmas card in their life. Some of them are my friends, and one of them is me. End quote. Aside from the attempts to overuse emotional labor, the real problem here is how depoliticized these struggles continue to be, and how devoid of a class analysis. Unlike the wages for housework movement, 
which saw a wage demand as a way to refuse the work of the home. Shane notes, quote, ultimately, Hartley wants what almost all of us alive in this moment want, less work. But she won't give up the fantasy of the magazine perfect home life, nor consider that this ideal's value lies primarily in its ability to signal power and wealth, not in its capacity to manifest meaningful care. If the women with the most options are unwilling to advocate major political and social change, then for all its grandstanding, Fed Up only predicts a future of more of the same. Women might be exhausted and exasperated, but sadly, they are still not fed up enough to say fuck it. That's all we have time for today. Thanks, as always, to all of you for listening, to Dissent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. Thank you especially very much to all of our lovely, beloved belabored sustaining members who give $3 or $5 or even $10 a month to keep us bringing you labor news, conversations, debates, grumping about emotional labor, and more of us saying arg. You can become one of them at dissentmagazine.org slash belabored membership, or you can also make a one-time donation to keep us going. You can also email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org if you are interested in advertising with us. You can, as always, tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're a GM factory worker or a Columbia graduate student, a migrant crossing the border or an activist supporting that work, an Amazon warehouse worker on strike, or just still fighting the wage gap. And tell us your story. We will be back in two weeks with much more. Thanks and solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.